You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, we're going to mix it up a little bit. Throughout this season, we've talked a great deal about harvest management, hunting tactics, migration updates, habitat updates, and a few science projects that are going on across across the continent. But today, we're going to kind of return to the bread and butter of what Ducks Unlimited is, our conservation work. And I'm also excited to say that this conversation today is going to take us to the Atlantic Flyway, where we admittedly have not had a lot of discussion, not had a lot of topics you know, that are relevant, directly relevant to the Atlantic Flyway this year. We're trying to remedy that. That's certainly a challenge whenever we're trying to get good geographic coverage across all topics and all areas of the of North America. But today I am happy that we, we're going to be able to talk about the Atlantic Flyway and some of the important waterfowl habitats and conservation work in that region, and specifically the northeastern portion of the Atlantic Flyway. So for this discussion, I'm happy to welcome in a, a new guest on the podcast, Sarah Fleming, Ducks Unlimited's Director of Conservation Programs for the Northeastern U.S. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Ah, glad to be here and glad to be able to highlight our Northeast program. We're going to start off with you, certainly since you're a new guest, giving a brief sort of personal and professional um, background uh, for yourself. So tell us a bit about who Sarah Fleming is. Sounds good. Well, um, starting way back, uh, I am actually Canadian or I'm American citizen now, but uh, was born and raised in Canada and did my undergrad at the University of Western Ontario um, in Ontario, Canada. I focused on waterfowl, uh, took some time off, traveled around, did all kinds of tech jobs in the prairies down in the um, over into the northeast part. And then I ended up down at Mississippi State uh, with Rick Kaminsky working on my master's degree, looking at how management uh, techniques on WRP lands influence uh, waterfowl use. And then after that, I was able to almost immediately roll into uh, a job with Ducks Unlimited in our Great Lakes region. And uh, that's where I started off with in our mitigation program and have been gradually working my way up to various positions, working in the um, New York as a New York regional biologist and then manager of conservation programs and to my current role as, as director of conservation programs for our Northeast region. I've been with DU for about 11 years now and loving every minute of it. I am an avid waterfowl hunter and hunter of all sorts. So I spend a lot of times in the marsh uh, reaping the benefits of the, the great work that our team does putting wetlands on the ground and always have my two hunting companions with me as much as they, they'll cooperate together, my two yellow labs. And uh, like I said, I, I always enjoy just sitting there and, and watching watching the benefits of our work. Very good. We're, we're going to get into a discussion about more about where you work, the type of uh, type of responsibilities you have, and then some of the discussions about the, the specific examples maybe of some conservation work that occurs up in that region. But first, because you are an avid waterfowl hunter, I wanted to take advantage of, of the time we have with you to ask you to give a, a quick recap of your 
hunting season, most stories that we've heard this year have not been uh, have not been too exciting. It's been a struggle across much of the U.S. There have been some bright spots, and we've heard from a few of those people. But uh, I'd like to hear about how your season has gone, and any, anything else that you would like to share about uh, uh, about hunting conditions or hunting experiences in New York this year. Well, yeah, as I said, I hunt generally locally where I'm from here in Syracuse, New York area. But it sounds like uh, our conditions are aligning with the rest of the country. Unfortunately, it was a very dry, uh, relatively dry summer, and that transitioned into a dry fall with almost limited snow cover. So a lot of our wetlands uh, really didn't fill up that much. Um, in addition, a lot of our birds, with it being a warm relative fall, you know, it's I'm looking outside right now. It's mid-January, and we're, we're in the 40s here in New York, which is not common. So a lot of our birds, you know, kind of trickled down this year. We didn't see the big push or big migrational push that we have historically in the past coming from Canada. And so it was very spread out. We had a few uh, good hits of big concentrations of mallards and some pintails in the early part of the season and throughout. But for the most part, it, it's been a challenge this year. People, if they can find the birds and concentrated locations did okay. Uh, but it wasn't a year to write home about. Let's, let's just say that, but still lots of opportunity. And one thing that was really nice to see just in these unfortunate times that we're in right now, there was a lot of new interest in the waterfowl community and a lot of new hunters out on the landscape, which was good and bad, posed some issues for us, uh, uh, who are going to our historic spots, finding somebody beating us to it. But otherwise, it's great to see all those new hunters out there engaging in the sport. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. We discussed that kind of maybe back in the fall, maybe even late summer. I, I think there were reports last year of of a dramatic increase in the number of uh, anglers. Uh, ang fishing license sales increased rapidly uh, last summer. And so we were expecting to see the same with all, so all sorts of hunting this fall and winter. And yeah, it'll be interesting and exciting to see what those numbers actually are once those data start coming out. I would imagine some states are already have those numbers summarized. I haven't seen any of that yet, but definitely something that we'll look forward to uh, here as we, as as that data becomes available. And it'll be interesting to see if if we're able to hang on to any of those new hunters uh, over the coming years, that would certainly be a welcome thing in terms of, um, you know, expanding the support for conservation work. And so, yeah, that was, uh, thank you for sharing that, Sarah. Let's move into uh, our discussion here about some of the conservation work. And I want to start uh, by giving you an opportunity to describe the, the geography. You, I think you cover a large, your responsibilities have you covering a, a large geography. And you can kind of touch on that however you, you'd, you'd like to there. But then I think we're going to maybe uh, narrow in our particular focus for this discussion. So just give us an introduction to the geography where you where you are that you cover and some of the important habitat types that we find in that region. Absolutely. So uh, as I said, uh, or as you said, pardon me, uh, we cover uh, a large area over here in the Northeast. It's, it's a 12 state region that we call uh, the Completing the Cycle Initiative. Uh, it basically is our, the north half of the Atlantic Flyaway. So that covers everything from the Chesapeake Bay all the way up to the uh, northern parts of Maine, including New York and Pennsylvania. So it's a relatively large geography and it encompasses a, a huge diversity of, of different landscapes, uh, specifically varying from inland forest tracts to uh, large coastal uh, embayments and uh, large coastal impoundment areas that, that were responsible or that we assist our, our uh, 
partners with managing. So that includes the Chesapeake Bay, the Delaware Bay, Long Island Sound, all the way up through Maine. So pretty significant habitats. Um, but as, as you said, I'm going to talk mostly about the program that I oversee. We have three other biologists that work on the ground under me, uh, one covering New York, one covering our Chesapeake Bay program, and another that focuses on the Delaware and Maryland Bay, or uh, Delaware and Long Island Sound area in Pennsylvania. So the bigger parts of, of the program, as I said, are definitely covered by a, by a great team of, of biologists and engineers, but I focus largely on our New England program. And that is also very diverse in and of itself. Uh, we're, we're talking about coastal and inland wetlands, rivers, large open water, bays, oxbows, and a lot of forested wetland habitat. Uh, these particular areas are largely diverse when it comes to uh, human population and growth, especially on the coastal areas. Uh, we're always seeing this, this interface of, of urban development uh, button up against a lot of our, our priority coastal areas. So that's something we we have to keep an eye on and, and be creative about how we're working to restore our wetland habitat. And some interesting facts about the region that we cover here in the completing the cycle is, you know, it holds one of the biggest uh, densities of human populations uh, pretty much in the entire eastern half of the United States. And um, not to mention, we have some extensive amount of very active and very uh, willing volunteers to help us out. I think there's about 12% of the uh, DU membership is based here simply just due to the large cities like Boston and New York, uh, Philadelphia. So as I said, that human dimensions is, is a really big part of what we talk about when we start looking at our conservation programs. So obviously we target waterfowl habitats, uh, but we also work to ensure critical resources for people and wildlife to, to mac maximize recreational opportunities. Science guides where we work, of course, as, as does all of our conservation programs. And we look to identify the highest priority areas that need our, our attention. Largely those focus on coastal areas. Um, again, that's because this is an area that's been historically most important to waterfowl, especially during the migration. Uh, but it's also areas that are critically important to some of our targeted waterfowl species. Thank you for that, Sarah. I did want to kind of go back a little bit because as, I, as I'm listening to you talk and thinking about the diversity of wetlands across that geography, it does occur to me that, that the wetland types that we have there probably across the spectrum are among the most diverse, uh, which is pretty fascinating to think about. And so just a question about one of those. You mentioned inland wetlands being uh, a big priority for the type of um, the, the type of wetlands that are important for waterfowl. Are we talking about uh, mostly natural wetlands that where the, the water levels are dictated solely by environmental factors, or are we talking about mostly managed wetlands like we would see in the California Central Valley? There's very few natural wetlands remaining in the Central Valley of California. Pretty much all that is driven by management, intensive management. What's the relative mix of that in the uh, in that northeastern fo New England focus area? Well, I'd say the majority of the wetland habitat, if we start uh, talking about the New England area, if we're talking coastal, um, it's pretty much, it's an open system, but they all have been manipulated one, one way or another. But fresh in-water wetlands, uh, as, as you alluded to, there's kind of a two types in there. One that's on managed land, so one's largely owned by uh, the state or the Fish and Wildlife Service and refuge systems that they spend a lot of time and money uh, manipulating water levels to maximize those, those wetland resources. Uh, but there is a huge, diverse uh, complex of fresh 
freshwater wetlands that are simply natural on the landscape, especially in the boreal parts of Maine. Um, those are beaver flowages and uh, forested wetlands that are still remnant of, of what how they were many, many years ago. And so our efforts in those systems are often more to protect those particular areas um, where our, our conservation restoration enhancement efforts are focusing a lot on the state, the lands that are owned by our partners to do um, and so, and improve the water quality and water management capabilities by putting in water control structures and helping them manipulate. But to your question, I'd say the bulk of the wetlands on the landscape in our northeast region are, are natural through just the diversity of landscapes that, that encompass this whole region. I know in most regions of the U.S., uh, and I guess most of North America, you get into the boreal forest of Canada, and maybe there's an exception here, but most of the wetlands, certainly in the U.S., are going to occur on private lands. Does that pattern hold in the New England states, or is a is a a larger percentage going to be on public lands up there. That gets, especially if you start talking Maine, that adds a little bit of a different uh, twist to it. But I'd say a larger than a large portion of the of the wetlands are on public or pardon me on private lands. Uh, that being maybe owned by timber companies, private landowners, other NGO and state and federal partners, uh, as well as private landowners individually. The proportion of actually state and federal owned lands is relatively small in comparison to the private land ownership in, in the region, which I think is pretty consistent across the country when we start uh, looking at uh, ownership of wetland habitat. Let's talk a bit about the waterfowl species there in the region. I, you know, we don't need to go down a an entire list here when we think about important waterfowl species in the northeastern U.S. You know, that's going to pretty much pretty much every uh, save a couple species of waterfowl are going to find their find themselves in that portion of the country at at some time. Maybe not in huge numbers, but when we think about waterfowl of the north northeastern U.S., what are the what are the a small handful that really come to mind that may be disproportionately important in the way we think about some of our habitat work. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right. There's a substantial number of birds that move through this area. We actually have over 30 waterfowl species that uh, call the Atlantic flyaway home at some, port, some point in their life cycle. But the ones that really jump out uh, specifically are the American black duck. Uh, this is really one that we actually focus on as being our, our mascot for a lot of the work we do in the Northeast. Historically, it's one of the most abundant waterfowl species, and it's one of the most sought after when it comes to our hunting community. Uh, there was a sharp decline in their population several years, like, well, a couple decades back now, but since roughly the early 90s, their population has, has been relatively stable. But it still remains a priority species for the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, as well as the Atlantic Coast Joint Venture and Ducks Unlimited to maximize the life cycle needs of this bird, um, largely because it completes its entire life cycle, breeding, staging, and wintering um, pretty much in our northeast region. So that's one we definitely spend a lot of attention on. Uh, we actually even use it to model a lot of our habitat objectives and uh, look to help it prioritize where we work and why we work based on a, a litany of, of research that has gone on uh, with this species over the last decade. But in addition to black ducks, uh, you know, we have the Atlantic Brant population, which is really important. We also have the James Bay and Atlantic populations of Canada geese, uh, which have also been uh, species that we've been watching pretty closely just uh, due to some bumps in their population recently due to cold weather up in their breeding, breeding grounds. And then our sea ducks are critically important as well. So we start talking about scoters, but common eider are also a really, really important one that relies heavily on a lot of the islands around Maine for nesting, uh, as well as they, they winter in this region as well. So 
we work closely to protect some of those islands to ensure the uh, eider populations have nesting habitat. So everything from inland black ducks all the way over to our sea ducks on the coast are critically important. And obviously, frequent listeners of this podcast will know that mallards, the eastern population of mallards, is also is also really in the spotlight right now. We had uh, Sarah. I'm not sure if you've if you've listened to these episodes yet, but we had a three part series with Dr. Phil Lavretsky where we talked about the entire uh, issue around mallard and black duck genetics or genetics around the entire mallard complex. And so we spent one entire sessions uh, episode talking about mallard genetics in the Atlantic flyway. So uh, we can't leave them out. So there, there's a, it's obviously a lot of conservation work and science going going on around uh, around that species. So thank you for that. It's always interesting to me to hear about the waterfowl species in these different regions. So. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Thank you for sharing that. You mentioned at the start that that region is important, and you may have mentioned it a couple of times here already, is important not only for waterfowl during the non-breeding period, but also the breeding period. Uh, how does that factor in the way we think about our habitat conservation work? Do we have projects where we say, all right, this is going to be strictly to provide habitats during the non-breeding period, or this is really these types of projects and programs are focusing primarily on delivering the needs for waterfowl during their breeding season. Is there a clear demarcation there? Or when we do wetland work, is it are we delivering benefits to cover all portions of the annual cycle? Does that make sense? Do we have any demarcation there? Yeah, and I, th- I think the simplest thing, well, it's not too, so, so simple, but um, as our name implies, completing the cycle is our objective is to maximize habitat on the ground to complete the entire life cycle need of waterfowl. Uh, so we do have breeding, staging, and wintering habitat objectives within the region. Uh, specifically, if we, we move up into Maine and some of the uh, northern parts of Ontario, uh, we do have some, you know, targeted areas for, for breeding waterfowl like, like mallards, black ducks, wood ducks uh, are, are very important species. But as we start moving down, uh, really the non-breeding period becomes a really high priority, uh, especially along the coast, Delaware Bay, Chesapeake Bay, as these are areas known to be significantly important for wintering waterfowl, especially like our canvasbacks. And so as far as our conservation efforts go, we try to maximize it as much as we possibly can. Um, but largely, I'd say our breeding waterfowl habitat conservation efforts are largely focused in protecting existing habitats, kind of, as you already alluded to, these forested or uh, areas that are in these these really pristine forested habitats in New York and our Adirondacks and up into Maine that are providing kind of the beaver type wetlands that black ducks really like, um, in addition to wood ducks. And then as we start moving further down, we start getting it more and more into urbanized areas, maximizing habitat so we can manage and, and provide the food resources that birds need during that non-breeding season is a really high priority as we move down from Long Island Sound into our Chesapeake Bay programs. I want you to describe some of the types of wetland techniques. Now, you've you've already mentioned the protection uh, as being mm-hmm. one of our 
the primary ways by which we conserve some of the breeding habitats, maintain protecting them from degradation or from loss and maintaining those the, the quality of those habitats as they currently exist. But then what kind of techniques or actions do we use in some areas? And, you know, you can pick a particular project, but just to give people an idea, when we talk about outside of protection, when we talk about doing habitat conservation work or habitat restoration or enhancement work in the New England states, what does that look like? Well, we actually have two types. Um, one is that's probably what a lot of the listeners might be familiar with would be our freshwater inland habitat restoration work, where we're working on state or, or uh, at least publicly owned lands where we're going in, putting in water control structures, berming, uh, and enhancing existing wetland habitat that allows the state to do uh, water level managements uh, and, and adjust the water level to maximize the vegetative response so it attracts a diversity of wildlife. But the ones that are really kind of coming online right now are is our coastal program. Uh, and really, that's because this, the coastal wetlands are the ones that are seeing the highest degradation, as you've already alluded to. And there's been a lot of changes to the landscape due to high urbanization and population encroaching, uh, hardening of shorelines and water quality issues that are a result of, of runoff from the landscape. So our coastal work tar- targets several different types of uh, we will we'll work with the state entities on tide gates, so working to improve the, the tidal fluctuation, the ebbs and flows, of, and trying to restore the natural uh, tidal flows in some of these areas that might have been reduced due to barriers such as roads or other infrastructure. So putting in big gates so you can control and hopefully restore some high marsh habitat, which is actually a uh, declining habitat in the northeast, which has subsequently seen a significant reduction in a, um, some very specific uh, bird species like the salt marsh sparrow. Uh, we also work, uh, uh, we're actually starting some new pilot work out at Rachel Carson, which is really exciting. This is some pilot work where we're looking to try to re-engage, so again, that ebb and flow, that natural ebb and flow into these tidal systems by working to restore the uh, connectivity of the of the salt marsh in, inland a little bit, um, there's been some changes in the elevational gradients in these large coastal marshes, um, large, largely due to perhaps some ditching that was uh, long ago that's remnant or just uh, sediment buildup that because these systems are so flat, uh, any changes in the topography has resulted in changes in the water flow through the system, which ultimately affects the, uh, the, the plant community and the ability of that marsh to, to uh, function properly. So we're going back in there to to try to restore that natural hydrology, which is, uh, like I said, some uh, some pilot projects we're starting on, but it's pretty exciting work. And then one that I'm really happy about, um, and it's been a huge part of our, our work in New England right now, is a program that we're working with with the Mass Division of Ecological Restoration to do cranberry bog restoration, um, which is a little unique to this area in that we're working on these fallow remnant cranberry bogs that are no longer being used by the farmers for one reason or another, just simply not producing. And we're working to try to go back in and put, um, uh, basically restore the natural hydrology in these particular systems and hopefully uh, basically restore the connectivity to these systems to the, uh, the coastal marshes. So restoring channels and, allowing for uh, new tidal flows to come in and eliminating barriers for migrating fish uh, and also restoring Atlantic cedar trees in this area. So um, beyond waterfowl, there's a lot of other really great benefits that are 
that are happening um, in this particular region. So that's one that's really novel, and we've been spending a lot of time on is that cranberry bog restoration. That's that's amazing information. Thank you for that, Sarah. I'll also say that one of the, one of the best things about interviewing people that are passionate about waterfowl is that. Every now and then, we're going to hear from their companions that are in the background. Oh, yes. <laughs> so it's like the last two episodes that we've recorded, we've actually had a guest appearance by the uh, retriever, oh, by <laughs> the retriever companions of our guests. So uh, that's not at all, not a problem at all. Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so thank you for that, Sarah. And I want to move on to our next question about uh, key partners. You've talked about several of these already, and we mentioned repeatedly that none of this work is done in isolation by just Ducks Unlimited. We depend on partners across a diverse spectrum, um, and, and that's that's certainly the case here, as you've already mentioned. But any other key partners that we need to identify uh, relative to some of the work that goes on in the northeastern U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, and that's this is always a tough question because you don't ever want to leave anybody off. Um, as you said, there's such a diversity of people that we work with to ensure we get our partners off the ground or our projects off the ground, and partnerships are key to our work. Uh, but as I said, we work very closely with the state and, the, and the, the federal government when it comes to our not only working on their lands but also for funding. Uh, but we also have a lot of NGO and land trusts that we work with in this particular region. Um, we also have great partnerships with Audubon and the Nature Conservancy. We work with uh, local municipalities like the town of Plymouth. Uh, in addition, that's something I haven't mentioned throughout this broadcast as well, is the private land partnerships. Uh, we have some great partnerships with uh, the Natural Resource Conservation Service helping deliver some of their farm bill programs. And uh, those private landowners are really key for us to be able to deliver our, our habitat conservation programs, not to mention they're usually conservation minded stewards of their land. And they work very closely with us for protection and uh, through either fee title or conservation easements. And so this is huge sources of leverage that we can maximize for other federal grant opportunities. But again, private landowners definitely play a key, key part of what we're doing on the landscape. And I definitely don't want to leave them off from our, our bigger partnership discussions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Sarah, you're director of conservation programs uh, in that in that uh, that area. So what does just kind of give people a, an idea of what that means? What occupies your day? What are the type of things that you do as director of conservation programs? Yeah, this is always a fun question because when we start talking about what I do on a day to day and, and sometimes I don't even know. <laughs> and uh, it's just it's always constantly something going on. A lot of time behind the computer. And um, I don't want to say it's I don't want to discourage by any means anybody wanting to, to move forward. We need, we need as many great waterfowl people and biologists on the ground to be our DU biologists. But I'm definitely not spending as much time in the blind and uh, as I would like. Let's just say that when it comes to spending time in the marshes as a Ducks Unlimited biologist. And really what that means is I'm, I'm spending a lot of time finding our money, uh, writing federal grants, finding ways to leverage our private dollars and donations and making sure we're maximizing where we're working that aligns with our, our science programs. Uh, I spend a lot of time on the road, you know, 12 state region um, and then the smaller New England region that I cover. It, it's, you know, it's a good drive from Syracuse. So, and it requires a lot of coordination with partners. So not so much this year, but uh, in the past, you know, it's, partner meetings, uh, working with the joint venture, serving on boards and landscape level committees, uh, making sure we're working in the best places that align with our science. Helping guide our science is another big part of my role. I work very closely with our, our uh, 
director of you know, our director in our science programs and helping them figure out where we should work, why we should be working there, uh, what data is missing that help us be able to deliver those conservation programs. So it's a it's a complex job that, that it's multifaceted. In addition to to the science part, there's also policy. Um, as we all know, making sure funding is available and making sure that we have the best policies in place to maximize our conservation efforts is critically important. So I'm, I'm working with uh, legislative staff and I'm working with our policy staff in D.C. on funding and other opportunities. So everything from even helping our engineers in the field, they'd, they'd cringe at me even suggesting that I, I'm an engineer in any way. But uh, I always joke that our bioengineering team is the, you know, the foundation of, of what we do where the biologists come together and I have these big, big scale ideas of what I want to see. And the engineers come in and they tell me what can actually be done. And then we, we deliver that project. So it's a very diverse, diverse skill set that's, uh, that I've learned over the last 11 years. <laughs> that, that's fantastic, Sarah. And I guess to kind of, um, to amplify one, something that you said earlier, we, I think most of us do find ourselves, um, not in the field as much as we perhaps thought we would whenever we first entered this, this profession and started going to school, getting, getting our training and education in this field. But if you like diversity in your job responsibilities, as you have described, there's probably not a better opportunity out there than some of the positions that Ducks Unlimited offers, uh, getting to interact with partners and members and volunteers. And it just, it, there's no end to the type of things that we can, that we, uh, that we have an opportunity to do and people that we interact with. And, and what makes it most rewarding is that these are people that share our interest in conservation in one way or another. So it's really cool. Thank you for, thank you for sharing all that. I do want to wrap, start wrapping up here. And, and, and I think what we'll do here is transition to, to get you to provide a bit of a summary on how breeding habitat conditions might be shaping up there in the in the northeast we're recording this episode on january 15th just a couple of days ago we released an episode with dr scott stevens where he gave us a january sort of update on how uh, some of the leading indicators you might say for how the, the prairie wetland conditions might be shaping up it's pretty dry out there right now not much snowpack uh, did not get a good frost seal in the fall. And so, but now when we move to the Northeast, we have a lot of breeding habitats there, but the dynamic nature of those wetlands is, is not quite the same as what we see and hear about in the prairies. So Sarah, I guess give us sort of the cliff notes version of how, what is the, what's the dynamic nature of wetlands in the Northeast from a breeding habitat standpoint? And then if you could, any insight on how things are shaping up? And I know that's nearly an impossible question to answer from a comprehensive standpoint because Eastern, Eastern breeding area is huge, but just even if it's just the area there in the Northeastern U.S., uh, how are things kind of shaping up if you have a handle on that? Well, as, as we already discussed earlier in the episodes, uh, a lot of the breeding wetland habitats here in the Northeast that are really important to our wood ducks and black ducks and mallards uh, are kind of wetlands that are part of the forested complex up in the Adirondacks, northern parts of Maine. So they're stable in the sense that uh, we don't have to rely heavily on uh, large rainfalls to fill them or, or even a lot of snow for that matter. Maine has, is there under snow? So we're not seeing too much issue with water availability uh, up in those part, those wetland habitats. And next to, you know, any spring rains, that's critical to help fill some of these, these areas. But uh, for the most part, our, 
our breeding landscape is, is generally pretty stable. Uh, we don't see the huge fluctuations in swing. Sometimes you get in the prairies that are more heavily relying on snow melt and rain in the, in the spring to really make sure that we have the maximum number of potholes out there. Um, with that in mind, moving our biggest breeding um, habitat is up in the boreal parts of Quebec and uh, northern Ontario. This year, heavy snow melt um, is is going to ensure that we have some pretty good areas up there if trends continue. I guess our biggest uh, is- issue or the thing we have to watch the closest is when that snow melts and if we have a really long, drawn-out spring that, that delays the melt and delays the bird's ability to move up into the northern parts to, to be able to breed. That can sometimes be a negative, but never to the point that it's affecting populations. We, we generally see pretty stable uh waterfowl numbers in the fall uh, with good breeding conditions here in the northeast. Excellent. Now, that's a topic that we will have to cover in more detail on subsequent episodes. So, uh, But thank you for doing your best and doing a great job <laughs> <laughs> telling us about those wetlands and how they compare. And so that was uh, great information. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Sarah, that's going to wrap it up here for us. You've been a fantastic guest. We've covered a lot of information. I've learned a lot about some of what goes on there in the in the New England states. And uh, as I've said a couple of times, you your involvement, your responsibilities extend beyond those areas that we've talked about here today. And so we have more information that we can cover with you in the future. And you're such a great guest. I guarantee you that I'm going I'm to be reaching out to you again. So thank you very much, Sarah. Well, very much appreciate it. And uh, I thank everybody and especially thanks to our volunteers who make our program so successful. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Sarah Fleming, Ducks Unlimited's Director of Conservation Programs in the Northeastern U.S., provided a wealth of information on some of the habitat work and habitats and waterfowl that we see up in that region, and we thank her for her time. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the work he does on this podcast. It wouldn't be possible without him. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your time and support of the podcast and for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.